1: The Presidency of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.
0: To the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States, I communicate to Congress certain documents, being a continuation of those heretofore laid before them on the subject of our affairs with Great Britain. Without going back beyond the renewal in 1803 of the war in which Great Britain is engaged and omitting unrepaired wrongs of inferior magnitude, the conduct of her government presents a series of acts hostile to the United States as an independent and neutral nation. We behold in fine, on the side of Great Britain, a state of war against the United States, and on the side of the United States, a state of peace toward Great Britain. Whether the United States shall continue passive under these progressive usurpations and these accumulating wrongs, or opposing force to force in defense of their national rights, shall commit a just cause into the hands of the almighty disposer of events, avoiding all connections which might entangle it in the contest or views of other powers, and preserving a constant readiness to concur in an honorable re-establishment of peace and friendship, is a solemn question which the Constitution wisely confides to the legislative department of the government. In recommending it to their early deliberations, I am happy in the assurance that the decision will be worthy the enlightened and patriotic counsels of a virtuous, a free, and a powerful nation. James Madison, Special Message, June 1st, 1812
1: In the five months between the President's New Year's Day reception at the President's House and his sending the special message to Congress requesting that it consider declaring war against Great Britain, much had transpired not just in washington d c but across the nation and in various parts of the globe. These tumultuous months would carry forward chains of events that would have long-term and far-reaching ramifications. Before I dive into all that, though I'd like to start by welcoming you to the presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Matthew Nickel for providing the intro quote for this episode. Matthew is a museum educator for the John Marshall House in Richmond, Virginia. I had the privilege of speaking with Matthew and his colleague Ben last year about John Marshall's career and legacy as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court on part two of the Seat at the Table episode on Marshall. If you haven't given it a listen yet, Please be sure to do so. Matthew and I have kept in contact since, and as a listener and friend of the podcast, he reached out to offer to read an upcoming opening quote, so I invited him to contribute to this key episode in the Madison Presidency series. If you haven't visited the John Marshall House in Richmond yet, I highly encourage you to do so. In addition to offering tours of the site, they also offer regular programming, some in person, some virtual, related to Marshall, his legacy, and the historic site. They're doing great work there, so please be sure to check them out. You can find more information on Preservation Virginia, that's all one word, dot O-R-G, and the John Marshall House is listed under historic sites. Before we dive in, I did want to discuss something that you may have noticed, namely that we have new intro music for this episode. I've been thinking about this for a bit, And while it seemed fitting for the early Madison presidency to retain the same music, we're starting to see his presidency evolve away from a continuation of the Jefferson presidency into something new. I thought this music would help to evoke that. Thus, I'd like to thank the folks at the Colonial Music Institute at George Washington's Mount Vernon for graciously allowing us the use of clips from Hull's Victory, as performed by David and Ginger Hildebrand, for our new intro and outro music. A direct link to the Colonial Music Institute and the great work that they do in researching and sharing information about early American music and dance will be available on the sources section for this episode. Or you can go to mountvernon.org and in the search field, type in Colonial Music Institute to learn more. Thanks so much to Alexandra and Dawn of the Colonial Music Institute, as well as David and Ginger for their help in making this happen. the social season in Washington of winter 1811-1812 had already proven to be a rather odd one. As we've discussed in recent episodes, an influx of new congressmen, one of whom ended up finagling his way to become Speaker of the House on his first day in that body, was having an impact on the social landscape of the capital city. In an ironic parallel to the metaphorical shake-up that the coming of these new politicos had wrought, on the night of February 7th, 1812, the denizens of Washington, D.C. were awoken by an earth tremor. This was part of the series of New Madrid earthquakes that we discussed back in episode 4.17, and even the president made note of it. The latter part of the season would at least have one bright moment in it for the Madisons. I mentioned at the end of last episode that Dolly Madison's sister, Lucy Payne Washington, was one of the family members staying at the president's house that winter. Since her husband's passing. As described by Dolly's biographer Catherine Al Gore, quote, a rich and pretty widow with impeccable political connections, Lucy found herself besieged with Beau. At some point in the social season, Lucy became acquainted with Supreme Court Associate Justice Thomas Todd of Kentucky, and by early spring 1812, the two were engaged to be wed. Historian Virginia Moore describes Todd as follows quote, He was a widower twelve years Lucy's senior with grown children, a man of kindness, learning, wit, and quiet charm who would make a good father for Lucy's three boys. Lucy did have some hesitation in accepting Thomas's hand in marriage and at one point it seems that the engagement was broken off and Todd was on his way back to Kentucky when word arrived that Lucy had reconsidered. Finally though, on March 29th, the two were wed at the President's house with President Madison giving away his sister-in-law. This wedding, which Al Gore described as quote unquote, a modest affair, was in fact the first recorded wedding in the building that we now know of as the White House. I specify recorded, as we don't have many details in the historical record about the enslaved individuals who also lived there during the Jefferson and Madison administrations. The Todds left Washington the next day for their honeymoon, then traveled to get Lucy's three sons and head to their new home in Kentucky. As the tides set off to begin their life together, they were leaving behind a capital city in the midst of political intrigue and debate. The administration, though it was starting to seriously discuss the declaration of war, continued to press the British government to come with sincere intent to the negotiating table in order to find an alternative. Madison had met personally with British Minister to the U.S. Augustus Foster on November 29, 1811, to explain to him that the U.S. had to at least have on the table the repeal of the orders in council which had hindered American neutral commerce if war was to be avoided. They wanted to discuss the British policy of impressment as well, but the repeal of the orders in council would at least indicate enough goodwill to placate American politicians and the public. As 1811 gave way to 1812, Foster was sending back reports warning that, quote, war appears to be wished by a considerable party in spite of the palpable and absolute want of means in this country to make war on us, and recommended enforcing the orders less stringently for our time in order to allow an opportunity for cooler heads to prevail in the U.S. However, the Warhawks continued pushing for military preparations in anticipation of war, and they had some unusual allies on their side. When the bill to recruit an additional 10,000 troops for the military passed the House and was sent over to the Senate, as discussed last episode, Senator William Branch Giles, Democratic-Republican from Virginia and no fan of Madison, upped the number to 25,000. To add an even more odd twist to this, Giles had done this with Federalist support. You know the old saying, the enemy of my enemy? That was the situation that the Invisibles, the Democratic-Republican opposition to Madison, and the Federalists found themselves in. As we discussed last episode, 1812 was an election year, and both factions saw this move of upping the number of troops to be added to the nation's military force as a means of ensuring Madison's downfall. Federalists felt that, even with this last-minute preparedness push, the war was doomed from the beginning, as Democratic-Republicans had for years cut funding to the military to the point that it was unprepared for conflict. Madison would be blamed for military failures, thus opening an opportunity for victory for the Federalist candidate for president that year. As for Giles and his faction? They knew that the reason the administration, working in conjunction with Speaker Clay and other war hawks in the House, had put the number at ten thousand, was to attempt to keep the costs low. This larger than expected troop increase would exponentially raise the cost of preparation, and when the federal budget went into the red, Madison would be blamed. He was, after all, the one who had asked for these preparedness measures in his latest annual address. Giles was just giving him more than he had asked, all for the national interest, of course. Though they didn't like it, the administration and the House Warhawks had to accept the amended number, and Madison affixed his signature to the bill authorizing 25,000 new troops. One can only imagine Secretary of Treasury Albert Gallatin's reaction as he started running the numbers in his mind when he heard of this amendment. Indeed, as described by historian Robert Elder, quote, Gallatin presented a thorough and frank report to Congress on the possible cost of the war and proposed an equally frank combination of loans and taxation to raise the funds, including taxes on sugar, spirits, stamps, and carriages. Without the Bank of the United States, whose charter Congress had not renewed, as discussed in episode 4.15, and with the war ensuring a drastic drop in customs duties as the u s. would be at war with its largest trading partner, options were limited for funding the war effort. Gallatin was likely relieved that a bill to provide quote for the construction of a dozen ships of the line and twenty frigates was rejected by the House by a vote of fifty nine for to sixty two against on january twenty seventh The cost that Gallatin was able to factor for, however, were chilling enough and caused some war hawks to take pause. By that point though, some in the Madison administration were working on gathering what they thought would be inconclusive evidence of British plotting against the United States. This dear friends gets us to what is one of the oddest stories in presidential history that I have encountered to date, all centered around an Irishman named James Henry. In 1808 and 1809, Henry was in the employ of Governor General of North America and Lieutenant Governor of Lower Canada, James Craig, quote, as a British secret agent in New England. Part of his mission was to court the goodwill of Federalist politicians, especially those who opposed war with England because of the harm it would do to trade. Fast forward a few years and Henry, now no longer employed by the British government, was in need of cash and searching for a way to sustain himself. Returning to the U.S. in the latter half of 1811, Henry shared the letters and reports that he had retained from his mission to New England with someone claiming to be the Comte de Cleon, but who, in fact, was a French adventurer slash con artist. The two decided that they should approach the U.S. government about paying for Henry to hand over the documents, which would prove the level of Federalist discontent in New England. Thus, in early 1812, Clion approached the French minister to the U.S., Louis Solier, who then shared the knowledge of the Henry letters with Secretary of State James Monroe, who then, in turn, informed President Madison. Through January and February, the administration negotiated with Henry through Clion as the intermediary, and finally, they came to an agreement. For $50,000 in federal funds, the documents were theirs. Madison and Monroe agreed. And the exchange was made. As noted by Monroe biographer Harry Ammond, quote, this amount, comprising the entire contingent fund for the State Department, was a fantastic price in view of the limited departmental budgets of the day. Yet Monroe and Madison unhesitatingly made this disbursement for letters of which they had read only portions. On March 9th, Madison sent the letters to Congress. The response, was not what the administration expected. The Federalists naturally attacked the letters as forgeries. However, Democratic-Republicans, already reeling from the potential cost of the war that the nation seemed to be barreling towards, looked at the price tag for these documents, and then looked at the documents themselves, and had one question in mind. You paid this for letters that didn't implicate one single individual in anything criminal? Al Gore explains that, quote, the letters had named Federalist names, but at the request of the President, John Henry had erased them before he handed the letters over, so that rather than airing their dirty laundry to the world, the great American family should see in this fortunate discovery only reasons for coming together and reuniting against the common enemy. Rather than being a point of public unity that Madison had envisioned, the Henry letters made the Federalists withdraw even further. Dolly Madison's table had previously been the one place in Washington that Federalists and Democratic Republicans gathered in a social setting, but now the former withdrew from that table in protest. Meanwhile, Madison's Democratic-Republican opponents were able to use the incident to attack the president for being fiscally irresponsible in an attempt to curry personal support at a time of national crisis. Randolph directly attacked the Henry letters as "quote a poor, shabby, shallow, dirty electioneering trick." The sharks continued to circle around the president's house. Before we go any further into the intrigue developing in Washington we do need to do a few geographic jumps, starting with the big one back across the Atlantic to check in on what was happening in Europe. As we discussed in episode 4.14, the situation for Napoleon's appointed King of Spain, Joseph Bonaparte, only went from bad to worse after Napoleon seized the northern portions of the country from his control. Even with the revenue from these new lands, French debt continued to grow. But the French emperor insisted upon continuing the peninsular war, even with his brother Joseph warning from Madrid that, quote, Your majesty is imposing a burden on this country that it simply cannot bear. Joseph attempted to gain support from Spanish nobles by giving them positions previously held by French officials in his court. But still, he wrote to his wife, Julie, who had remained in Paris, rather than joining her husband in Madrid, that, quote, Spanish public opinion is entirely turned against us. He used Julie as an intermediary to appeal to Napoleon to allow him to abandon his crown in Spain. Joseph wrote exasperatingly that, quote, I want to know what precisely he, Napoleon, wants of me, and if that position includes humiliating me, then I wish to retire from here. I do not want to be merely a crown child king because I do not need a crown to prove myself a man, and I feel myself quite great enough on my own merits without having to put up with such charades. Juli reported back in mid-January 1811 that, quote, he, Napoleon, repeated to me that you had only two possibilities open to you, to remain in Spain and quietly accept his wishes, or to return to France as a French prince, and He added, if he has any sense, he will remain in Spain and follow my orders. Joseph remained for a few months before departing from Madrid on April 23rd to travel to Paris to, quote, plead for more political and military independence for himself and more financial help for the country. Finally, Napoleon, quote, promised to restore to him complete civil and military command, bolstered. By substantial loans. With this guarantee, Joseph departed back from Madrid on June 16th. On June 22nd, Napoleon issued an even more humiliating decree regarding his sibling kings, establishing that all members of the Bonaparte clan, then serving as ruling monarchs within his empire, were thereby reduced from kings to mere French princes. What use did French Emperor Napoleon have for his quarrelsome brothers, none of whom seemed willing to bend entirely to his will, when he had begun to establish his own ruling lineage? That's right, by that point, Napoleon had the male heir that he had always wanted and that his previous wife, Josephine, had been unable to provide. On the evening of March nineteenth, 1811, the Empress Marie-Louise went into labor. And though it was touch and go for a bit, the next morning, Napoleon François Joseph Charles Bonaparte was born. The emperor immediately proclaimed his newborn son as the king of Rome. Napoleon boasted at this point, quote, Now begins the finest period of my reign. Indeed, thinking his authority more secure than ever before, the emperor was increasingly turning his attention east. The peace between the French Empire and the Russian Empire had always been one built on shaky ground, despite the Treaty of Tilsit ending the War of the Fourth Coalition and the reaffirmation of the alliance at a meeting in Erfurt in 1808, as noted in episode 4.4. By the end of 1810, Russian Tsar Alexander was ready to act, and on December 31st issued a decree, quote, placing high import duties on all French goods, chiefly luxury items while reopening Russian ports to British trade. Meanwhile, Russian fortifications were constructed on the River Divna to protect Russia from potential attack from the west. Napoleon was naturally furious at the move, and on February 28, 1811, wrote the Tsar fuming that the decree, quote, both in essence and form, was specifically directed against France, and therefore, in the view of Europe and England, Our alliance no longer exists. Unbeknownst to Alexander, Napoleon had directed his war minister ten days earlier to prepare for war with Russia. By May 1811, orders were issued recalling the French ambassador from St. Petersburg. And in August, the French emperor, quote, convened a ministerial conference in which he outlined his intended campaign against Russia. Though Napoleon had resisted multiple requests from his subordinates to take direct command of the French army's mired efforts in Spain, where 280,000 of his troops were struggling. He was so agitated and ready to get on the move to Russia that he was moving from one palace to another without warning. And domestic staff at all of his palaces had to be ready for his arrival at any moment, quote, for Napoleon flew into a rage when, on a whim, he left one palace for another, only to find nothing in readiness for him and his suite. Tsar Alexander, meanwhile, wrote his sister in November 1811 that, quote, We are in a state of highest alert. The situation is so delicate, so tense, that hostilities might break out at any moment now. The moment a French army passes the river Oder, for I can no longer hold the Elbe, I believe. I have the right to consider war to have been declared against me, and divine providence alone will decide the outcome. Before Napoleon could begin his campaign, however, developments were happening with his other enemy, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, that would impact what's ahead in our narrative we talked in numerous episodes in our narrative series about the shaky ground that British Prime Minister Spencer Percival and his ministry had been on since they had assumed office in October 1809. The situation had only gone from bad to worse when the king's eldest son, like his father, also named George, had accepted the post of Prince Regent that Percival had reluctantly been forced to offer to him in early 1811 due to the king's incapacity, as we discussed in episode 4.16. The Prince Regent was more closely aligned with the opposition Whigs, but when they proved unable to form a government, George had been forced to accept Percival's continuance as Prime Minister for the time being. While he still desired a Whig government, the Prince Regent was initially restrained by the fact that his regency had restricted authority for a year, as was Percival's condition in offering it to him. However, as February 1812 neared and the time-limited restrictions would end, George appeared not ready to take the bold step to openly invite the Whigs to form a government, though he did make overtures about them joining the Percival administration. A member of the ministry saw this idea as an opportunity to displace Percival and assume the prime ministership himself. Foreign Secretary Lord Wellesley began to make overtures to the Prince Regent about joining with Whigs to form a coalition government in place of the Percival ministry. And indeed, the Prince Regent sent the Duke of York to talk with Whig leaders about the idea. Historian Saul David informs us that, quote, The choice of the Duke of York as a go between was, Thomas Grenville told Buckingham on the fourteenth of february, a strong indication that the regent did not intend a successful issue to it. Soon enough, the Whig leaders announced that quote, they could not unite with the present government because their differences of opinion were too many and too important. It's likely that the Prince Regent knew what Percival did that recent victories of British forces in the Peninsular War had eased some of the political pressure on the Prime Minister, and Percival would be the strongest partner in seeing through the war against Napoleon. Still, Wellesley was determined to resign, and he did so on March 4, 1812. To replace him, Percival appointed Lord Castlereagh, who had previously served in the ministry of William Pitt the Younger and Lord Portland. Bringing Castlereagh into the government proved to be a good move, finally giving Percival a united cabinet that could begin to think proactively rather than reactively as they had primarily been forced to do in the past few years. Indeed, even prior to Wellesley's departure, the Percival ministry had begun to prepare for another potential conflict. Increasingly, as I mentioned earlier, London was getting reports back from British Minister to the U.S. Augustus Foster warning of the potential for war. To that end, in January 1812, the Prince Regent, in a letter countersigned by the Secretary for War and the Colonies, Lord Liverpool, to the Day of Algiers, Haji Ali ben Qiril, reminding the day of the strength of the British Navy and their agreement of British support of Algiers against their enemies. The letter also warned the day, That Britain's enemies may try to drive a wedge between them, but that they should support one another. Now, this may sound rather odd to us at first glance, but U.S. consul in Algiers Tobias Lear immediately knew what it was about as soon as he got wind of it in April and wrote back to Washington. As described by historian Frederick Lanier, the document not only offered a shield for Algiers, but also served as an open invitation to enlist Algiers against Britain's maritime enemies. The Algerines may have been poorly informed with world events, but they knew enough to understand that the British were providing them carte blanche to strike the Americans, with whom British relations had been unraveling. American trade had suffered in the past few years through American embargoes, British orders and council, and French decrees. The Mediterranean trade was needed to help keep American merchants afloat, and since the end of the war with Tripoli in 1805, except for one brief point of tension in 1807 due to a delay in the payment of tribute to Algiers, there had been no seizure of American vessels by the Barbary States of North Africa. We'll have to wait to see what happens with this invitation, but for now, let's focus back on the situation in London. Things were continuing to look up for Prime Minister Percival as he was even able to bring former Prime Minister Henry Addington Now Lord Sidmouth, into his government in April 1812 over the Prince Regent's objections, further strengthening party support around him. Little did he know that he would in a few weeks' time be meeting John Bellingham. Who, you ask, is John Bellingham? Well, he was a merchant's clerk who had fallen into debt while working for a British firm in Archangel, Russia, and thus had ended up in prison there for five years. Bellingham felt that the British ambassador to Russia had not done enough to secure his release and that he was entitled to compensation from his government. However, British officials in London, upon his return, would not give him the time of day. Though he initially thought of taking his revenge on the former ambassador, who was now a prominent politician in the government, Bellingham ultimately decided to take his discontent out with the man at the top. Thus, on the afternoon of May eleventh, 1812, Bellingham waited in the lobby of the House of Commons for the arrival of the Prime Minister. As described by historian Dick Leonard, quote, As Percival entered the lobby, he, i.e. Bellingham, rushed up to him, held a pistol against his breast, and discharged a single shot. Percival staggered forward, cried out, I am murdered, murdered, and fell down dead. Bellingham quietly sat down beside his smoking pistol and waited to be arrested. The 49-year-old Percival did indeed die that day in the lobby, thus ending his tenure of two years and 221 days as prime minister. Again from Leonard, quote, Percival was not a great prime minister, but with all his limitations, was remarkably successful in achieving what he set out to do. At the time of his death, his government had achieved more authority and seemed more stable than any of its predecessors since the first administration of the younger pit as you can imagine this unexpected turn of events threw the political landscape of the united kingdom into turmoil the cabinet quickly rallied around lord liverpool the previously mentioned secretary of war and the colonies as their choice for percival's successor but wellesley saw percival's demise as an opportunity him. The cabinet, after consulting with the Prince Regent, approached Wellesley and the other chief Tory opponent to the Percival government, George Canning, about one or both of them joining a Liverpool ministry and uniting the Tory faction. Both men refused. Going back to the drawing board, the cabinet then decided to approach Whig leaders about forming a coalition government. The reception to that idea by the Whigs was as cool as Canning and Wellesley's had been. The Prince Regent, in an attempt to end the stalemate, issued an invitation to Wellesley to attempt to form a government, an idea Wellesley really liked, as you can imagine. Thus, Wellesley went to the Percival cabinet and asked them to join forces, but with him as the head of the government. And what you have to imagine was rather of a tit-for-tat, they unanimously refused. And without them, or the Whig leaders, who had already refused to join a Wellesley coalition government, there was no possible route for Wellesley to establish a ministry. By this point, the Prince Regent was growing frustrated and turned to a long-time friend, Lord Moira, to invite him to form a government. Moira made a little more progress with getting Canning on board as First Lord of the Treasury and leader of the House of Commons, but it was known that Moira would just be a figurehead. The Prince Regent realized that this would be an impractical government for a nation still at war with France and potentially going into a war with the United States, so he directed Moira to work with Liverpool and the Lord Chancellor, the Earl of Eldon, to find a solution. Finally, nearly a month after Percival's assassination, a solution was reached. Liverpool would serve as Prime Minister and give Lord Sidmouth a more prominent role in the ministry as Home Secretary while other close allies of Sidmouth were given positions, including Nicholas Vincitard as Chancellor of the Exchequer. Lord Eldon was retained as Lord Chancellor, while Castlereagh would remain as Foreign Secretary and Leader of the House of Commons. Canning and Wellesley remained on the outs, but it consolidated enough Tory support that, on June 8, 1812, Lord Liverpool became Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Now, we'll have to explore the reasons behind why Lord Liverpool was seen as the right person for the position at the time by the Percival cabinet in a future episode, as we still have much to cover. For now, all that you need to know is that Liverpool represented a shift in policy in terms of the British approach to the United States and would, soon after taking office, act on it. Unfortunately for him, the timing did not align with what was happening on the other side of the Atlantic. But we'll come back to that towards the end of this episode. For now, though, we do need to hop back across to North America and check in on events in the American Southwest before going back to Washington, D.C., as what transpired there in the spring of 1812 would ultimately fold into the conflict between the British and the Americans. In episode 4.17, we discussed Tecumseh's outreach to the Muskogee in the fall of 1811 and his threat to Tuscanoogee, the Muskogee leader dubbed the Big Warrior by Americans who was opposed to joining Tecumseh's Confederacy, that once he got to Detroit, quote, I will stamp my foot upon the ground and shake down every house in Tuckabatchee. Lo and behold, on December 16th, the Muskogee Nation felt the earthquake whose epicenter was close to New Madrid in modern-day Missouri. Though we have no reports on the impacts in the Muskokee Nation, we do have accounts from further east in Georgia that indicate that it must have been an intense event. However, as historian Howard Weir notes quote, "Even as the terrible first Timbler struck, and even after equally strong quakes persisted through December and into January and February, many creeks resisted Tecumseh's call to war with the Americans. Luckily for his cause, Tecumseh had a person on the ground working to secure support from Native peoples in the Old Southwest. He had left a Muscogee named Sikabu, who had been, quote, a trusted companion, serving Tecumseh as an interpreter and a spiritual advisor during his Southern tour. Sikabu went through the nation and spread the word of, quote, the religious teachings of Tecumseh's brother, Tenskwatawa, that Native people should reject American ways and influence, Abstain from alcohol, and return to their traditional culture and ways of life. He finally found strong support among the Alabama nation, and out of this support came a faction which Ware dubbed the Prophets. Indian agent Benjamin Hawkins and pro American Muskogee leaders downplayed the significance of this movement, but it coincided with a large influx of American settlers starting in the fall of 1811 traveling along the Federal Road through the muskogee lands bound for the Mississippi Territory. It was a powder keg of a situation, and on March 26, 1812, it began its explosion. A 62-year-old Revolutionary War veteran named Thomas Meredith was traveling with his family and enslaved individuals on the Federal Road and waiting to cross Pinchlong Creek when a muskogee chief named Monmouth and four others approached them. Words were exchanged between the two parties, and before long, quote, the Creeks suddenly began to assault Meredith and an unnamed man in the party with sticks and knives. Meredith and his elderly companion attempted to escape across the creek by canoe, but were caught by the Indians. While his family looked on, the Creeks murdered Meredith and mortally wounded his companion. Another party traveling through Muskokee territory on May 23rd, quote, was fired on by a group of four Indians belonging to a branch of the Tulasi tribe. In the assault, a man named Arthur Lott was killed. These assaults, however, would pale in comparison to the attack on the Crawley household on May 12th. The Crawleys lived on a homestead quote, near the mouth of the Duck River, not far from the small but fast-growing town of Nashville, Tennessee. At the time, Mr. Crawley was away on business, and his pregnant wife Martha was left to tend to her three children at home. That morning, with a woman named Manly and her three children visiting, Martha was doing her usual chores, including tending to the newborn child that had been born during her husband's absence when, quote, some 8 to 11 Creek Warriors, howling at the limits of their breath, crashed out of the forest and sprinted toward the open cabin door. Crawley barred the door, then gathered her two youngest children and hid them in, quote, a shallow potato cellar beneath the cabin floor. Soon enough, the Muskokee warriors broke through the door, pinning Martha Crawley between the door and the wall while they killed Manley and the children not in the potato cellar. Crawley was soon discovered by the Muscogee behind the door, and they, quote, took her south with them to a village at the falls of the Black Warrior River, Where the town of Tuscaloosa, Alabama, lies today. They didn't harm her on the journey other than tying her up at night, and they forced her to cook for them. Ultimately, Crawley would be freed and reunited with her husband and her two remaining children. But among white society in Tennessee, from the state's governor, Wiley Blount, on down, there was a sense of outrage at the attack. Ware notes that, quote, a middle aged militia general and planter named Andrew Jackson. Went into paroxysms of outrage that reached new heights of the colorful, opportunistic rhetoric of the times when discussing the Crawley attack. With attacks on white settlers on the rise in the West in the spring of 1812, it doesn't take a leap of the imagination to know that an American response would be soon in coming. We'll have to explore that in another episode, however, because we need to return to Washington, D.C., to get caught up on developments there. Despite the fiasco of the Henry Letters, the national government had to consider how to approach the likelihood of war. Though Congress proved unwilling to entertain the idea of reviving the Bank of the United States, the House Ways and Means Committee put forward recommendations in mid-February, quote, that customs duties be tripled, a direct tax of 3 million dollars be placed on the states along with other direct taxes, and a loan of 11 million dollars be sought. In March, Congress passed its appropriations bill, and it was left to Secretary of the Treasury Gallatin to figure out how to obtain the $11 million loan. Meanwhile, in mid-March, Speaker of the House Henry Clay met with Secretary of State Monroe, then in writing proposed that a 30-day general embargo be enacted to be followed by a declaration of war. The embargo would allow American ships to get to port before warfare began and they ended up setting ducks for the British Navy on the high seas. Ten days later, he was backed up by three prominent members of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. The chairman of the committee, Representative Peter B. Porter, Democratic Republican from New York, as well as Representatives John C. Calhoun, Democratic Republican from South Carolina, and John Smiley, Democratic Republican from Pennsylvania. A week after that, Representative Porter, quote, virtually demanded that Monroe inform the committee when the administration would be ready to proceed to ulterior measures. However, as things were quickly becoming very real in terms of the slippery-sloped conflict, the Madison administration paused and had to think. On the afternoon of March 30th, Monroe traveled to Capitol Hill to meet with the House Foreign Affairs Committee about the situation. Monroe assured them that the administration was still committed to war, quote, if Britain did not abandon her hostile policy. However, the administration felt that a 60-day embargo should be put in place to give a little more time for preparation as well as for the USS Hornet to return from the other side of the Atlantic, hopefully with news that the British government had changed its tune. Madison followed this up with a special message to Congress on April 1st making the formal request for a 60-day general embargo. The formal request for a short-term embargo naturally alarmed British minister to the U.S., Augustus Foster. Though the minister had been relieved that the Henry Letters matter had come to naught, and, as noted by historian William Masterson, Foster, quote, was, as usual, absorbed in the personalities of society and in the almost incessant festivities of that last winter of peace. Even he could see where this was headed. On April 2nd, Foster approached Monroe to ask whether he should consider the request for a general embargo, quote, as a step preparatory to war or simply as a municipal measure on the part of the United States. Monroe confirmed that it was the latter. The next day, Foster asked the same question of President Madison, and he was a bit more elusive. Quote, Oh, no, embargo is not war, Madison said, though he didn't deny the possibility of war in the near future either. Foster interpreted the President's statements as opening up the possibility of a peaceful resolution that Madison might be willing to compromise on some aspects of British maritime policy. Meanwhile, in the House, the embargo bill quickly passed and was sent to the Senate. There, however, The going would not be quite so easy, thanks to those anti-administration Democratic-Republicans dubbed the Invisibles. We've talked in the past about how Senators Samuel Smith of Maryland, William Branch Giles of Virginia, and Michael Leib of Pennsylvania had taken to be stalwart opponents of the Madison administration, and the few limits that they had were completely removed since Smith's brother, Robert Smith, had been ousted as Secretary of State. However, at this stage, they were divided on their approach. We put forward a motion to extend the period of the embargo from 60 to 90 days, but this was opposed by Smith, who, quote, felt that three months was far too long a time for such a measure. For once, Smith was in agreement with the general direction the administration was taking towards war. As described by Smith's biographer, Frank Castle, quote, he sensed the administration and Congress were finally coming to agree with his point of view, and he did everything in his power To encourage them, his encouragement in this instance was to vote against the embargo bill. However, despite Smith and Giles joining eleven other senators in voting against it, the embargo bill passed the Senate by a vote of twenty thirteen and was signed into law by Madison on April fourth. At the passage of this bill, Foster began to worry, though he continued to maintain a hope that a peaceful solution was still possible. As noted by Masterson, quote, the confused minister tried to influence American events as best he could. First, he asked Monroe for the names of allegedly impressed Americans so that he might secure their release. Then, at a Sunday dinner, he schemed with all congressional Federalists to delay possible war votes by calling for recesses or adjournment or by absenteeism. Foster then asked these guests to promise the president re-election votes in return for abandoning the Warhawks. Later, there were rumors of British banknotes dropped on the floor of Congress. The Federalists did not present a united front in terms of policy to oppose the course of events, however, as some, quote, accepted the prospect of war, certain that it would ruin Republicanism and at least bring to an end the detested policy of commercial restrictions. Foster was correct in identifying the upcoming presidential election as a factor at play in the political calculus of the moment, however. Before we get to that, though, we have to discuss something we haven't seen since 1803, or episode 3.12 in terms of our narrative. That's right, the 18th state is ready to enter the Union. The Orleans Territory had sent its formal petition for statehood to Congress on March twelfth, eighteen ten. This petition was put forward on April ninth to the Senate by the aforementioned Senator William Branch Giles of Virginia. Unfortunately, the House of Representatives did not act on it before adjourning. In between sessions, something major happened, namely, That the portion of west Florida that now forms the southeastern portion of Louisiana north of Lake Pontchartrain was annexed by the United States and attached to the Orleans Territory. Thus, when Mississippi territorial delegate George Poindexter reintroduced a bill in the House that December for the admission of the Orleans Territory to statehood, he included in the territory what is now known as the Florida parishes. The bill passed Congress this time, and Madison signed it. On February 20th 1811 the convention to draft the state constitution that was supposed to begin on November 4th got off to a slow start due to absences including that of the territorial governor William CC C. Claiborne but finally on November 18th it convened and began its work as noted by Claiborne biographer Joseph Hatfield quote using the United States and the South Carolina constitutions as models the delegates drafted a constitution which bore the imprint of both archetypes. The convention adopted the constitution on January 22, 1812. Then the next day, worked on a memorial which would be sent along with the state constitution to Congress, formally requesting that the portion of West Florida that had been claimed to date be included in the new state of Louisiana. Governor Claiborne wrote to Madison administration officials warning that any delay in conferring statehood on Louisiana, quote, would disappoint the Louisianians and embarrass him personally. There was no reason for him to worry, however. Congress and the Madison administration understood clearly just how important New Orleans was strategically for the U.S., especially in the wake of war. And thus, upon receiving the drafted state constitution, Congress quickly gave its approval and on April 8, 1812, Madison signed the bill to make Louisiana the 18th state of the Union. Six days later, he signed another bill, quote, extending the boundaries of Louisiana to include those lands lying south of the Mississippi Territory and east of the Mississippi River to the Pearl River. And that, dear friends, is how the state of my birth came into the Union. There wasn't much time to celebrate, however, for there was so much else happening in Washington. As mentioned last episode, Vice President George Clinton in the spring of 1812 was ill, and his health continued to deteriorate as the year went on. He was attended to while on his sickbed by his daughter Maria and his son-in-law, Representative Pierre Van Cortlandt Jr., Democratic-Republican from New York. Finally, though, on the morning of April twentieth, 1812, George Clinton passed away from pneumonia at the age of 72. Senator William H. Crawford, Democrat-Republican from Georgia, serving as president pro tempore, officially announced the death to the Senate. And the next day, both houses of Congress, quote, met in a special morning session to settle the funeral arrangements. Both houses resolved that their presiding officer's chairs be shrouded with black for the remainder of the session and that their members wear black crepe on their left arm for 30 days. The entire Congress planned to attend the funeral later that day. Naturally, President Madison and members of the cabinet joined in the funeral procession from the U.S. Capitol to the Congressional Cemetery. As the National Intelligencer proclaimed, When a Clinton descends to the tomb of his ancestors, it is fit that the whole nation bewail the general loss, and history immortalizes his name. Hallowed be the ashes of the honored dead. Though we've only been able to view Clinton through the lens of the presidency, I feel that I should read this summation from Clinton's biographer John Kaminsky to encourage further study of this key figure in early American history. Quote, George Clinton helped win America's independence. Subsequently, he devoted his life to securing the triumph of republicanism, what we would today call democracy, uncontrolled by wealth or corruption. His legacy Was a vibrant nation of states and people just beginning to develop its unlimited potential of political and economic freedom. Time would wait for no man, however, and George Clinton was no exception. So much was going on at this time that, unfortunately, Clinton's passing has become a blip in American history. The embargo clock was still ticking, and there was the small matter of the presidential election coming up, which was now made even more complicated with the vice president's death. On March 7th, the Democratic-Republican Caucus in Pennsylvania became the first to endorse Madison's renomination as president. New York, however, was in doubt. As discussed last episode, there was talk of running a candidate from the Empire State against Madison. If the vice president was not a viable candidate, maybe his nephew, DeWitt Clinton, would do. As had happened previously, a congressional caucus of Democratic-Republicans was convened on May 18th in the Senate chamber to decide who they would endorse as president. When this group of 82 senators and representatives met, quote, Madison was the unanimous choice. As historian Norman rhys notes, though, quote, 51 congressmen failed to attend the meeting, though many of these were out of town. Were they conveniently out of town in order to avoid casting a vote to renominate Madison or was it just a coincidence? Likely a mixed bag, though, grains of salt at the ready, friends, I would postulate that, given the opposition we've seen that Madison had within the faction to date, there were quite a few deliberate abstentions in the mix there. Deciding on someone for the top of the ticket was easy enough. Now, it only left the question of who would be Madison's running mate. The caucus quickly settled on John Langdon of New Hampshire. That may lead you to ask, dear listener, who in the world is John Langdon? Langdon has been operating on our periphery for some time and was mentioned in passing in episodes 1.31, 3.4, and 3.17. He had been an early leader in the revolutionary movement, serving in the Second Continental Congress before resigning to help with the war effort, both militarily and politically, back in New England. He served a couple of terms as governor of New Hampshire, was one of the signers of the Constitution, and served in the U.S. Senate through the presidential terms of George Washington and John Adams. Leaving the national political scene, Langdon again served in the New Hampshire state legislature before being elected governor again and serving from 1805 until 1811. Now, it seemed that this man who had served his state and nation for the last few decades was being given yet another opportunity to serve. This time, however, Langdon said no. Considering that he would be turning 71 in a few months, it's understandable that Langdon felt that the time had come for him to slow down. Though he would not return to public office, Langdon did live on past the end of the Madison presidency. This was all well and good for Langdon, but this left the pro-administration Democrat republicans with a vacancy at the bottom of the presidential ticket feeling that they needed someone from the North to balance the ticket, as Clinton had previously and Langdon would have done, they looked around and finally settled on the governor of Massachusetts. Who was the governor of Massachusetts at this point, you may ask? It was none other than someone who played a major role in the Adams presidency series, one-time Peace Commissioner to France, Elbridge Gary. Now, this brings us To one of those interesting points in American history. As we noted in the Adams series, Gary, though a Democratic-Republican, had been a close ally of John Adams. He had rather consistently been somewhere in the middle. Not a radical member of his faction, Gary had attempted over the years to reach out and appeal to moderate Federalists as well as Democratic-Republicans. Despite this, prior to eighteen ten, he had run for governor and lost five times. As noted by Gary's biographer, George Billius, quote, his older style of politics, stressing personal rather than party loyalty, was becoming outmoded by new political techniques. Further, he was a Democratic-Republican in a state where Federalists by and large dominated the political scene. Gary's congressional service had been at a time prior to the sharp political divide that emerged from the Washington presidency. And since then, he had proven unable to bridge that divide despite his best efforts. Madison's ascendancy to the presidency, however, opened up an opportunity. Though still a Democratic-Republican, at least at the beginning, it seemed like the Federalists were a bit more amenable to the new president. Also, the Democratic-Republican faction as a whole was undergoing a realignment, and that was happening on the state level in Massachusetts just as it was on the national level. The party leaders in Massachusetts felt in 1810, quote, that accommodation was a better political tactic than polarization, and thus they turned to Gary as their candidate for governor that year. Though he would still come under fire by the Federalist press, as Billius described, quote, the pattern throughout the state was much the same as it had been trending, a slight increase in Republican voters accompanied by a sharp drop in Federalist support it was enough to push gary over the top and into the governorship in his inaugural address in june gary issued quote a call for reconciliation of the two political parties this outreach towards the ideological center however was ridiculed by radical democratic republicans and it was a delicate balance that was completely overturned after he won a second one-year term as governor in 1811 first when Federalists held a massive protest rally that year to decry the non-intercourse act that had been pushed through Congress by the Madison administration, Gary delivered a speech at the opening session of the state legislature in which he denounced the demonstration and its leaders, asserting that they and the resolves that had been passed at a recent protest meeting would result in, quote, a state of civil warfare. So much for appealing to Federalists. Then, As the Democratic-Republicans had finally managed in 1811 to gain control of all of the branches of state government in Massachusetts, and it was time to draw new legislative districts based on the recent census, the Democratic-Republican leadership in the state legislature decided to engage in what is now a well-established but still quite controversial tactic to ensure that they would remain in political power. Rather than focusing on the ideal of establishing new districts to ensure equal representation, they would instead draw districts that would favor Democratic-Republican candidates over Federalist candidates. The bill drawing these new districts passed in February 1812, and Gary, though bilious, notes, was, quote, not the originator of the bill, approved it. With this approval, and the fact that he was the state party leader, soon enough, Federalists started mocking these new districts, saying that the one in Essex County, Gary's County of Birth, looked like a salamander. No, wait, they thought. It looked like a gerrymander. Yes, this is where that term came from, and as we're all aware, it has stuck for over 200 years to describe this practice. With criticism coming at him left and right, in early 1812, Gary went down in defeat in his re-election bid against Federalist candidate Caleb Strong. Though Strong had only won with a 1,200-vote majority, it was enough to push Gary out of power. Without a political office to hold, Gary scrambled to figure out what to do next. He had to find employment fast because Governor Gary was heavily in debt. As noted by Billius, quote, his salary as governor, though substantial, had not enabled him to save any money as it had gone towards paying back a debt owed to the federal government as well as funding social gatherings expected for the governor to host. Gary was so desperate that he wrote to Madison asking him for a federal office. The position of collector of the Port of Boston was open at the time. Could he be considered for that one? Please? Pretty please? While Gary would lose out on that collector position, it was decided that he should be rewarded for his loyalty to Madison over the course of his first term. Thus, the Congressional Caucus reconvened and nominated Elbridge Gerry to be his running mate. Not only was Gerry a loyal supporter of Madison and a vocal proponent of war with Britain, the 67-year-old was seen as being incapable of running in opposition to either Madison or the man who many were already seeing as Madison's probable successor, James Monroe. This did not mean, however, that the road was clear for Madison to secure a second term. As was the practice of the time, often party members and state legislatures would gather in caucus meetings to endorse presidential candidates as well. When the Democratic-Republican legislators in New York gathered in late May, however, it wasn't Madison's name that was on their lips. At least, not to say anything positive about It seems like they were bolstered in their anti-administration discontent by a letter that arrived during their discussions from none other than the Postmaster General of the United States, Gideon Granger. Granger's letter, quote, denounced the administration for leading the country into war and demanded energetic leadership and firm policies that would shorten the conflict. To that end, 90 out of 95 Democratic-Republican state legislators present at the caucus meeting on May twenty-ninth nominated Lieutenant Governor DeWitt Clinton as President of the United States. Though New York Governor Daniel Tompkins, former U.S. Ministers to France Robert R. Livingston and John Armstrong, and even Clinton's own brother-in-law Judge Ambrose Spencer would come out in opposition to this nomination, it was the official start of DeWitt Clinton's presidential campaign in 1812, and bode it ill, both for the state of the Democratic-Republican Party in New York, as well as Madison's chances for reelection as New York was a key state needed to win the Electoral College. We'll discuss more about DeWitt Clinton as we go along, but for now, let's head back to Washington and the penultimate moment in the push for war. The months waiting for the embargo to run its course were frustrating ones. As noted by Masterson, quote, The embargo left worried farmers with unsold crops and angry New England shippers refused to support government loans and elected some Federalists to office. As he began to gather intelligence while he was still on the ground in the case of war, British Minister to the U.S. Augustus Foster received new instructions on May 22nd that only reinforced the government's continued support for the orders in council and was, severely cautioned against any suggestion that the orders would be removed. Foster, however, tried one more tactic to avoid war. He first offered the Madison administration a chance to split, quote, the licensed trade with the French West Indies. Then, when they refused that, proposed, quote, that Britain would give up this trade altogether in return for a restoration of American trade and acceptance of a rigorous blockade of the French Empire. Neither Madison nor Monroe was ready to give up the right to neutral trade, however, and refused. The timer was about to go off on the embargo clock, and the administration was ready, at least in terms of resolve. On June 1st, Madison sent over a special message to Congress, and in a closed session, a clerk read it out the president asserted that, quote, it has become sufficiently certain that the commerce of the United States is not to be sacrificed, not as interfering with the belligerent rights of Great Britain, not as supplying the wants of her enemies, which she herself supplies, but as interfering with the monopoly which she covets for her own commerce and navigation, a commerce polluted by forgeries and perjuries. Though, as we heard in our opening quote, Madison left the ultimate decision to Congress. He did posit that, at least, quote, on the side of Great Britain, a state of war against the United States was already in existence. As Congress began their debate, Madison met with British Minister Foster on the afternoon of June 3rd, and the British diplomat found the president, quote, very pale and extremely agitated. Foster attended Dolly Madison's reception that evening and found folks already, quote, asking if they could buy his fine racehorses and a large tent used for outdoor entertainments, as he would likely be leaving Washington sooner rather than later. The House on June 4th approved in secret session a resolution to declare war on Great Britain by a vote of 79 to 49, but the big question mark remaining was what the Senate would do. Given that the Senate was the seat of opposition to Madison, It was still in question whether they would go along with the resolution. It took two weeks, but finally, on June 17th, by a vote of 19 to 13, the Senate approved the Declaration of War resolution, though with some minor amendments that would have to be sent back to the House for approval. That evening, Foster attended Dolly's reception and, quote, as usual, he bowed three times to the President, who he noted, quote, looked ghastly pale. The next day, the House agreed to the Senate's amendments and sent the bill to Madison for his approval. That day, President Madison signed the war declaration and the United States was officially at war with the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. Dear listeners, we'll wrap up our narrative with one of the greatest ironic moments in American history to date that occurred, not in the United States, but rather in London. Remember how I said that it was important to note that the new British Prime Minister, Lord Liverpool, had a different take on Anglo-American relations than his predecessor? For years, through the ministries of Grenville, Portland, and Percival, American diplomats had been searching for someone, anyone, willing to talk about repealing the orders in council and kept coming up short. Finally, in Liverpool, they found someone willing, but there was little that could be done until the matter of the formation of the new government was finalized. With that done, on June 16th, a motion was put forward to repeal the Orders in Council. After debating for a week, on June 23rd, Foreign Secretary Lord Castlereagh announced that the Liverpool Ministry was officially revoking the Orders in Council. If the timing had worked out right, it is quite possible that war could have been avoided. As this had been one of the major issues in the American position, this could have provided an opening to negotiations that could, at the very least, have maintained a tenuous peace as the Napoleonic Wars wrapped up. That, however, is a matter of alternative history speculation. We, dear friends, can only deal with the reality, and the historical reality is that war has been entered into and would be prosecuted. We should note, though that this was not the only war that the US was involved in at the time. For months before Madison requested a formal declaration of war against Britain, American forces had already engaged in an undeclared war against Spanish authorities in East Florida. That is a story for another episode, for it is time for me to wrap up for this time. Special thanks again to Matthew Nickel for providing the intro quote for this episode, as well as his continued support of this podcast and friendship to this podcaster. Please be sure to check out the John Marshall House online or in person if you find yourself in Richmond. I'll have links to the John Marshall House on the sources used for this episode as well as a direct link to the Colonial Music Institute at George Washington's Mount Vernon, who graciously allowed us the use of clips from Holes' Victory for our intro and outro music. You can find these links on the website at presidenciespodcast.com, as well as all of the sources used in this episode, all the past episodes of this podcast, links to information about all the presidents to date, and more. You can also find information on how to leave a rating and review. I'd also like to take a moment to thank our newest patron, Terrell, as well as all of our patrons for generously supporting the work of this podcast. If you'd like to become a patron of Presidencies and help to offset the cost of equipment, hosting fees, and the extensive source materials used for this podcast, just go to patreon.com presidencies and sign up. If you'd like to reach out to me, feel free to send me an email at presidenciespodcast, that's all one word, dot com or you can reach out via social media. I'm on Facebook, Mastodon, and Post as Presidencies, on Twitter as Presidencies89, and on Instagram as Podcast. all one word. Last but certainly not least, I wanted to thank you so much for listening. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends.